and welcome to Panorama. I am your co-host, Dan Torres, and I'm here with Sarah Robertson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Dan. Who do we have on the show today? Oh, we have an excellent guest that I'm really excited to talk to. His name is John Hewer. He is a guest columnist for the Greenfield Recorder. And John Hewer, uh, you are a professor, social critic, philosopher, I may add, to many things. But your article that touched on this that I was really fascinated about uh, that you wrote was called Trump's New American Revolution of 2024. And it was captured in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Why did you write this article here about Trump? He's running for, for the presidency. Why did you think it was important to write about this sort of movement. You compared it, if I'm not mistaken here, to sort of a revolution, and you compared it to 1776. Mm -hmm. He's almost capturing the zeitgeist of the moment. So tell us more about that. Of course, column writing, you know, logical and planned, and sometimes it's impromptu. You just get the inspiration. Mm. And of course, Trump inspires you quite a bit, always. Uh, And I've written quite a few articles already about Trump. We tend to look at Trump as the focal point mm. in America. It's just, you know, we watch uh, MSNBC and, and read the Washington Post and, and New York Times and stuff like that. The general uh, focus is always on Trump. Readership, audience requires it. Instead of historical background to how we came to have Trump. And sometimes they do ask that question, why are we here, or something like that. Uh, But the point is, what is the historical uh, sociological background that brought Trump to us? Mm -hmm. And you have to, and as my habit as a sociologist, retired sociologist, I look at the historical patterns. Mm. And sometimes it does not really illuminate or give answers to a lot of the immediate questions, eventually, the historical analysis always enlightens the the questions and then the puzzles we have. So Mm. the puzzle, of course, is how do we have Trump here Mm -hmm. with us? And uh, my quick answer is, since the end of World War II, America has gone into a very different kind of cultural Meaning, you know, we went through the Great Depression and poverty and World War II and all that. That makes things very restricted. Americans stopped enjoying life for a, a long time through the Depression and war and all that. Now, the end of World War II liberated America in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, technologically, cable TV, and then Mm -hmm. a little bit late, computer development and all that just created a whole new culture where we are just really enjoying ourselves. Mm -hmm. So enjoying ourselves, what does that mean? It means we are liberating, we call it. Historic, we call it deregulation. Mm -hmm. But we deregulate ourselves out of our social and community restraint and responsibility. Mm -hmm. See, up to World War II, America, you know, individualist society and all that, but still had some sense of community. Yes. There's certain ideological, political, and cultural unity about it. And, you know, both the Republicans and Democrats 
and both white and non-white sort of had things together. At mm -hmm. least that was our accepted. They believed in America, despite being right. mistreated. Possibly. There was something yeah. called America and right. Americans. Americans and and social critics like me or social scientists referred to Americans. Right. Comfortably today we can't do that, of course. Right. What kind of Americans are you talking about? Just, the reference is totally different. So the 50 years or so that followed the end of World War II, mm -hmm. affluent society, great society, all-out development of consumer culture. Mm -hmm. We're just out there to do things. And then, of course, all kinds of things are happening at the same time, like birth control pills mm -hmm. developed, all, you know, anti-Vietnam explosion mm -hmm. of the new generation demanding, you know, their freedom and all that happening. And, of course, three channels, television channels, right. uh, opening up 3,000 right. television channels. Right. So that the conclusion of all of that development is that we became very individualized in our own little cocoon. And you don't have to rely on anybody else mm. for your satisfaction. You can have it all you want. And now we, you know, technologically, we call it algorithm. Right. And algorithm is that each individual is given what he wants. So you have that kind of culture. There's nothing but sugar in your diet for 50 years, almost three generations. What do you get from it? Narcissism. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the individualized sort of <laughs> feelings. That's, that's at least what I'm getting from, from what you're describing, John. What happened to the public interest? They've individualized it. Is this, is this part of the deindustrialization? And talk about loneliness in the society. We talk about opiate crisis all the time. Is that connected to what you're <laughs> describing? Yeah. Of course, America has always been called a nation of strangers. America is unique in the sense that all other nations we know of were created naturally. In, in a sense, you know, the first two guys got together, you know, two became four and four became <laughs> 16, whatever. Right. And a nation is born into, a, into their modern form. America was created by design. Mm -hmm. And it's the only society, only nation ever created by design, mm -hmm. debate, vote, and then agreement. Well, the question is, it's like a country club. You go in there, you join it for some benefit that you see from joining it. Mm -hmm. And if that benefit is in doubt, of course you quit, because you don't have any other emotional, tribal historical, religious, or class-related attractions or reasons for staying in the group. So the very nature of patriotism, uh, Americanism, things that we associate with America was always flimsy. Like you ask a Japanese person, are you proud to be a Japanese citizen? Of course, the very idea of citizenship is not a paper concept or you know, logical or legal concept. It's something that is a subconscious. In every other society, you will find that subconscious connection with each other. Mm. In America, 
that connection has never existed. Mm. It has always been a logical, rational agreement. Now, there's a famous there's a recording by Robert Mitchum's brother. I think it was James Mitchum with John Wayne. It's <laughs> 70, exactly 70 years ago, actually. And I was thinking about writing a column about it and like an update. Mm-hmm. The recording was called Why I Love America. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there, James Mitchum and John Wayne together create this whole panorama of America, a great vision of America's physical nature. They talk about the great seashores and great sunrises in Kansas and, you know, things that are physical. Mm-hmm. But what if they didn't exist? Well, they wouldn't know what to say for the reason they love America. So it's physical. And then now, of course, economic and cultural. Yeah, we got the best entertainment in the world, greatest income, and whatever. Particular reason for your love or your patriotism. And do you think that Donald Trump has tapped into that? What makes him such a popular figure? Does does he realize human beings oftentimes want and need, which is sense of community and bond? So is that where he's drawing his strength from? Well, how Donald Trump has created that unique bond with his followers is somewhat multi-layered, of course. Yeah. It's not complicated or complex, but it it's simple enough. Of course, if you look at things historically, mm-hmm. things are always simple. You know, I wrote within three months of his election. I wrote this book, my fastest book, and then the fastest book they ever printed. And, and what was the name of the book? Donald Trump, yeah. Made in the USA. There you go. I argued that Trump was created by America. All great figures in America, like Charles Lindbergh or Marilyn Monroe, they're all created by their society, and they're destroyed by their society. And Trump was created by America's post-war consumer culture. Mm. You know, people just became very dumb. If you just give them everything they want all the time, I mean, what happens to them? But anyway, so Trump is a result of that. But at the same time, it's also Trump's specific practical strategy. What is it? Trump, we don't, tr- we don't trust Trump for anything he, he does as a permanent policy or permanent ideology or permanent Americanism that Trump strongly believes in. NATO, it could be something else. Putin, it could be something else. China policy, it could be something else. We expect him to change everything. All the time, very unpredictably, and people don't care. But what is it that he is consistently on to and never changes? And they know that. The followers know that he never changes with this, this particular ideological bond with his followers. Of course, everybody seems to know they're not saying it, and I think that's racism. Racism has always stayed very consistent and very permanent, makes up the core of Trumpism. And Trump, everything else, farm policies and NATO policies, foreign policies, who cares? He he makes jokes of these things, but he will never change his racist policy or maybe secondarily immigration policy. Same thing, uh, in the same category. By using racist red meat, he appeals to his followers immediately. But the followers themselves were, in a very broad sense, were ready. For 50 years, they were given nothing but sugar in their diet and nothing but praise. And, you know, I'm sorry, you have to have commercials. But what's a commercial? It's, it's, uh, 
It's pandering. It's pandering and like praising rotten kids. How wonderful they're all the time. And that's so you just become rottener and rottener. Just for 50 years, three generations, you've been given nothing but sugar and praise. In fact, I have written a column titled Nothing But Sugar and Praise. (laughs) Now, can you imagine raising your child with nothing but sugar and praise? All the time. Because the child that says, Dad, I don't like you. Don't like. <laughs> or if I like you, like it. Well, <laughs> life goes on like that. It's just all the time. So I say, if Americans have become very um, dumb, dumbest generation, as they say, I say it has to do with propaganda effect and commercial advertisement. <laughs> See, advertisement in a very insidious way create an alternate world where everybody is pretty and smiling and happy and no problems ever exist that cannot be solved with one pill or whatever one little decision right and that's the kind of world we have been given the last 50 years yeah speaking of commercial breaks Let's give them sugar and praise. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here with a, a regular uh, columnist, guest columnist for the Greenfield Recorder, John Hewer, who is retired professor, social critic, philosopher, the wisest conversation I've heard on these airwaves in a very, very long time, maybe ever. And we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Panorama. We are talking to John Hewer. He's a social critic and he's a columnist for the Greenfield Recorder and the Daily Hampshire Gazette. And we've been talking about Trump and all the sugar and praise in our society that has led us here. And um, one of the points you made, John, was that the only thing that Trump is really consistent about is his racism and this like fear-mongering tribalism that he's really tapped into. To me, and you can tell me if you feel this way as well, I, I feel like it's the, the cracks are showing in this big American empire, and he's tapping into this fear of inadequacy that the U.S. hasn't really felt before. And, and I'm wondering if, if that's where this monster is coming from, or if you feel similarly. Of course, you uh, have to look into it analytically. And because it's my habit, my 50 years of academic life has been about analyzing the causes of our social behavior all the way to the very bottom of it, so you can't go any further. And that is human nature. As I mentioned, American society is the only nation that was, that was designed by intelligent analysis, search for human nature. American, so-called American settlers came to America what were they looking for? Now, every other nation, we are all surrounded by history, class, sometimes king and lords and religion and, you know, the experiences together. Because most nations have gone through a lot of hardships together, wars and famine and all kinds of things. The United States is the only one, as historians uh, call it, an untried civilization, because we have had nothing but winning wars, 
and great economic booms and even the depressions and troubles we've had, we overcame them. Childlike view of the world and history and our role in these things. So we demand what we want. And what is it that each human being demands? Anyway, if he can or she can do it, she can get what he or she demands. Ultimately, in the ultimate natural analysis of human nature, is that we want to be pleased. What is the economic system America is so good with and is so successful? Pleasing the consumers. Ours is called the consumer culture. And we love it, all right? Is there any reason why we should not love getting and consuming what we want every day, physically like food, uh, culturally like entertainment? Is there anything? So, our, in fact, if you have a brilliant child, very likely the child is going to uh, be in one form or another of pleasing the consumer's business. Is this why when I look at pictures of Americans in the 1960s, they are thin and they look fit? And then you see Americans today, right? It is, according to the government statistics, 75% are overweight, almost half are obese. So here's a question for you. Did that come about because people felt the loneliness and emptiness and they sometimes satisfy that emptiness with food? Well, again, human behavior is actually controlled in our normal Social, social circumstances, our behavior is regulated, controlled, circumscribed by other people around us. That's, that's what our society is all about. We live with each other and we live for each other and by each other. That's human nature, the nature of society. Now, America is, of course, is, as I mentioned, uh, the nation of strangers. We, we, we call that individualism. But individualism that we have today is a child's notion of individualism. Under Thomas Jefferson and early founding fathers during frontier America, America was truly individualistic. And people lived as individuals because nobody else could tell you what to do and what not to do because your livelihood was completely independent and you didn't depend on anyone for your life. Therefore, you were truly an individualist politically and economically. Today, we don't have anything like that. Your, your livelihood, I'm sorry, your radio station holds your livelihood. Now, I'm retired so I'm free. <laughs> but for 50 years, I worked like a slave. And now I'm, well, I don't know whether that's freedom or not, but anyway. Uh, you have a very interesting academic life. You published a phenomenal book that you're very well known for in 1977, if I'm not mistaken, The Dead End. And you predicted the demise of America. You predicted that we would be in this sort of predicament that we are in today. You're praised by the Time magazine. Talk to us about that. And what happened to you and academia after the publication of this book? <laughs> I was fired from every job I ever held as a professor. <laughs> I don't know what Which the... means you're the best professor <laughs> possible. That's, it. That's the only mark of that means. <laughs> right. Normally, you know, an average professor uh, gets tenured uh, within seven years. It took me 15 years 
and in several tries and finally made it. At any rate, the, the dead end was written in seven, 1975 okay. and published in 77. And the Time magazine uh, had a little write-up on it in 1980. And now it's almost 45 years have passed. And there I prophesied, if you will, that America as a democratic nation will not be able to sustain itself. I was actually naming Russia as America's nemesis. And in fact, I, in fact, I quoted Alexis de Tocqueville, a very famous, of course, French uh, philosopher and historian, who actually mentioned in his book, that was 150 years ago, that Russia and America would be the two, two pillars of the world mm. against each other. And anyway, in my book, and Time Magazine quoted it, I said, as long as we are not fighting each other with the nuclear weapons, it will be social character that will determine who's going to be the winner. And what's the social character? At the time, I didn't really know how American social character would uh, uh, destroy itself, mm. how America would be destroyed you know, 50 years later. I had no idea because at the time, America was very prosperous and imagining, you know, that America would be destroyed within itself, by itself, was unthinkable. And uh, all the Time magazine agreed with me. Nobody else wanted to Together. read it or publish it. Anyway, so it just... Uh, How many rejections? I believe it was 100 and... It's got to be, anyway, a, it's gotta be a Guinness yeah. Book of Guinness World book. Records. Yeah, it broke uh, <laughs> the Guinness Book. World Record of, of Number of Rejections. World Record for Rejection. You know, critique what I'm saying or correct what I'm saying here. We've lost values and character that we once had. And we've replaced it with consumption and goods. By doing that, there's this deep emptiness in America. Maybe it's spiritual. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I would argue that something John has said is that America never had the foundation in the first place. We're this hodgepodge society. So we don't have a core identity of values to hold on to. We're just floating through consumerist space. <laughs> yes, of course, you know, the rest of the world looks to America for certain democratic ideals with which America started. Thomas Jefferson's all men are created equal and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, and more recently, uh, uh, liberty and justice for all. All these things are, in a way, uniquely American. For this particular democratic ideology or belief that America was always looked to as sort of a beacon of the world. What happened to that is that America's frontier individualism and freedom and liberty and justice and equality were completely destroyed by the coming of capitalism. Capitalism basically is there to please people, please the consumers. And because they produce products in a certain way, to appeal to human nature, that humanity, which makes up people's social makeup. You are, you eat food and then you die in old age. But in the meantime, you live as a social being. 
as a human being with other human beings. That part is completely destroyed or denied by capitalism because capitalism merely encourages our natural self, meaning our selfishness and individual interest to rise to the top and nothing else. Mm. Matters in it. Racism is nothing really that appeals to white people than racism. It love, I mean, they love it. Talk to us about how the internet economy has turbocharged this to a level that you maybe could have never foreseen, right? I mean, the algorithms, the digital, it is <clears throat> all about the individual, right? The, the tech addiction that the is by design. Yeah. Right. Cable TV is a wonderful thing that creates individual entertainment cocoon. But digital, the digital economy is a sort of a multiplied version that cable TV. It's much easier and it's cheaper and just incredibly widespread. And we can do it with the digital TV. I mean, digital uh, computer technology. And computer technology has created, you know, in a strange way, cable TV still had some sense of community. Right. Digital technology makes everyone totally unconnected. We are, of course, connected with uh, social media and, and all that. But these are not really connections. It's something you play with from your end. And what the other end is, we don't care and we don't know. Because we can quit anytime we want to. Right. You know, just something, one little one click, something is gone or something materializes. Now, what kind of uh, reality is it? Almost Fantasy. an incredible kind of culture that we live with or reality that we deal with as our reality. And there is no reality. It's, it's just, I taught soldiers overseas for 25 years yeah. for the... Defense Department. And in a way, we came back 25 years later and we were shocked and we are still in shock how America has just become totally just destroyed. And in fact, my mother-in-law warned us when we were retiring, now wherever you want to stay, do some research because people are very different now. <laughs> it's not like, uh, it's not like it was. what you remembered. Well, we're talking here with John Hewer. Uh, a guest columnist for the Greenfield Recorder, retired professor, social critic. We're learning a lot here on Panorama. We'll be right back. And we're back here on Panorama. I'm your co-host, Dan Torres, here with Sarah Robertson. We're talking to John Hewer, uh, who is a social critic, uh, author, is a columnist there at the Greenfield Recorder, and we're talking about consumer culture, American culture, the election uh, of Donald Trump and society, but I wanted to discuss higher education. It's been in the news quite a bit recently. We have been talking about resignations, president of Harvard, president of the University of Pennsylvania, and you wrote a book called Tenure for Socrates, is that right? Mm -hmm. You criticized the system of tenure, and I want you to, to discuss your, your arguments. Um, what is it, and uh, what is wrong with tenure? In a, in a sort of interesting way, two philosophers in Texas wrote a book titled Socrates Tenured. <laughs> it's a little takeoff <laughs> on my book, uh, but never contacted me or anything. I mean, I, that's, I was telling my wife when I saw the book. 
isn't this supposed to happen after you were dead? I mean, you know, you were famous, and then they play with your, your works. book titles. And <laughs> it happens but, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, tenure is at the core of modern academic freedom. So what symbolizes university life today is that it is protected by the tenure system. And, te and the tenure system is created to protect the professors from being penalized for pursuing truth. Now, there are two jobs, positions, I would say, in America that are tenured, meaning security, job security for life. Now, imagine that, you know, if you had that job security, the freedom that would give you, or the, the dangerous parties, the laziness, well, and corruption that would also give you. Give so you, that's, right? yeah. You can produce So you that, can yeah. see the, the problem that goes with the tenure. Right. People but anyway. Get, people get tenure, they oftentimes won't challenge the system, though, <laughs> right? They won't challenge or make the kind of critiques, right? They are given tenure, tenure protection to challenge the system for the benefit of truth. But they go the opposite way. Right. They are corrupted by the system. Right. It's just simply as a job for life. So the other position is uh, federal judges. And federal judges in their decision making are not supposed to be influenced by any political power or social criticisms and whatever. So that they are protected for their individual decision making power for the truth. I don't worry about the federal judges becoming corrupt because they have got jobs to do every day, you know, and their decisions to make, and they just cannot be too lazy because you just, they have to do the job. But professors are different. They teach maybe two, three classes a week if they're busy, and then the rest of them, their time, they, they spend writing articles nobody reads, and books nobody cares and nobody understands. Because academic life, I'm not talking about scientists, right. physicists, and chemists, but I'm talking about academic, so-called academics, the ones with a PhD in yeah. English, sociology, psychology, and political science, and history, and all that. Uh, maybe history, I should be all right forgiven. But anyway, these so-called academics do stuff that nobody really reads and nobody really cares. Even academics don't read right. the stuff. It's just something that you have to produce to get tenure. So, so what would you say to somebody who's listening who is an adjunct and doesn't have uh, you know, health insurance and they know increasingly all the work at the university is starting to fall on adjunct shoulders and the professors are even teaching fewer courses and doing <clears> less <throat> of the grading? It almost seems like the system is now tilting towards greater adjunct and non-tenured faculty, will that make the system better yeah. or worse? Well, of course, you know, every university is under pressure. Financially. Uh, financial pressure. Yeah. And therefore, one of the easier ways of coping with it is to um, hire part-timers. Mm -hmm. And the ratio between the full-timers and part-timers in income, I think maybe 20 to 1. Right. It's extremely expensive to maintain a full-time faculty. So their, their temptation is to hire these uh, part-timers, and then they have to just teach like five, six, seven different places to earn a living. Earn a living. It's a terrible thing because it's either right. tenured position and security or you're just... Uh, 
an adjunct. Yeah, <laughs> part timer. Yeah, throwing the dogs. Throwing yeah, the dogs. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, and that sort of thing, we don't really care about because it's it's not politically sexy. Yeah. We don't really care. Who cares about what professors do? <laughs> so professors are sort of secluded and cloistered in a way. They have just complete freedom. Mm. But that freedom, exercise. yeah, comes with the tenure. So getting tenure is it. I mean, that's the only thing you have as a university professor that you look forward to, you fight for. Mm. Well, what else is, you're not saving the world. It's not <laughs> your type of uh, ambition or ability or desire. It's getting tenured and then, aha, you're, you're secure for life. life. And it is very strange because in a capitalist society where you have to prove yourself every day to maintain your job, professors are immune from it. Well, yeah, uh, they, although they're now they're under attack and there's, they're finding ways to get rid of uh, professors who do have tenure. And in some that, ways, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. the anti-woke people <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, DeSantis attack of professors. Right. And uh, somehow professors are very quiet now. Right. They haven't come out attacking or criticizing right. DeSantis or any yeah, anti-woke yeah. people or anything. Because right. I guess they just don't have anything to, uh, to defend or to do anything. So they're just right. being quiet. Right. Although they do have tenure and they could speak out and be protected legally from, you know, from speaking out and exercising those rights that you've been talking about. But we're talking to John Hewer here on Panorama. He is a columnist at the Greenfield Recorder, a social critic, retired professor, very fascinating life. I've learned a lot so far, and we'll continue the conversation right after this. And we're back here on Panorama. My co-host Dan Torres here with Sarah Robertson, and we're talking to a, a very interesting guest, uh, John Hewer, who is a guest columnist for the Greenfield Recorder, retired professor, lives in Greenfield. You're, you identify as a social critic in, in many ways, and you talk about what a social critic is in America and that type of life. Tell us how difficult is it to be a social critic of America today? Not easy, <laughs> of course. You know, we have a lot of critics, food critics, movie critics, sports critics, art critics. They're all loved. We love them. We love them to tell us what they think of a particular food, a particular sport event, or a particular movie and art, all that, except... Social critic. We don't like social critic because somehow we tend to think social critics criticize them and they take things personally. Although, of course, no social critic ever criticizes anybody personally. It's to make America a better society according to the original conception of America, for example, as a nation, all right, all men are created equal. But if it's not created equal now, shouldn't the critics criticize and shouldn't people accept that criticism? You know, I always define, I separate stupidity with ignorance. And uh, my wife says, what's your easiest example of stupid and uh, ignorant persons? I say, you know, I sometimes say, 
Canada is a better society than America is in so many ways. And an ignorant person says, oh, what can we do to make America as good as Canada or better than Canada? Hmm. Stupid person is, says, why don't you go to Canada and live there? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But anyways, that's a social critic. Mm -hmm. uh, social criticism started a long time ago, even, you know, in uh, Roman days. Mm -hmm. The great Roman conquerors, when they were coming home triumphantly, there was always a slave assigned to the hero to say, to whisper. Sometimes you see it actually in Hollywood movies. Uh, I think if I remember it correctly, memento mori, memento mori, meaning remember death, hmm. meaning you are just merely a mortal being. Hmm. Don't forget that. So memento mori, memento mori. Do you know what Memento Mori is now? It's a jewelry specialty uh, product. <laughs> Before you die, get all our uh, jewelry uh, products. Memento Mori. Hey, you, you could say that self-reflection is not a strong point <laughs> for, for many Americans. But well, do you think that would help us? Like, if we could do that a bit better, maybe we wouldn't have this wannabe dictator running for president. Self-reflection. Your self-reflection is not coming from you. It's coming from others, from your social uh, regulations and social rules and norms. So you reflect if you are surrounded by others. Without that, there's no self-reflection. Self-reflection is a self-criticism. And somebody like Trump, there's no concept of self-reflection as a product of society and community and others. I don't think he recognized anybody else as a human being living in the same society and sharing the same community. I don't believe he has that kind of concept. And in general, we don't. Self-reflection is just very difficult, as you say. Yeah, especially in a society that is increasingly lonely. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, uh, the famous book written by a sociologist called Lonely Crowd, you know, the, uh, the irony of it. We are in a crowd like a huge ball game or rock concert, but we are so lonely in that crowd because we have no connections. And we may scream and holler and all that during the ball game, but as soon as the game is over, we just become completely, complete strangers and say, bye. Or wouldn't you, I don't think we even say, all the guys you were high-fiving with and all that, just completely nobodies. Maybe it's the only way. <laughs> the only way you can stay optimistic. <laughs> we can meet our end. There you go. Peacefully. Well, we've been talking to John Hewer, who is a columnist for the Greenfield Recorder, uh, oftentimes uh, published as well in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. And we've been talking about the article he wrote called Trump's New American Revolution of 2024. Uh, he is a retired professor, lives in Greenfield, and we really appreciate the conversation, John Huber. Um, I've learned a lot and a lot to take home, and uh, thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you.